3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Oh, Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to 8.30am. Yeah. Good morning and welcome to Thursday Breakfast. This is Leela coming to you from Yalabarang, Collingwood Studio. This morning we'll be hearing some conversations from earlier in the week, as well as a pre-record and live interview from Priya, who is joining us remotely this morning. First up, we will be hearing from Sam and Jack from Dirt Radio, who will be speaking to Cam Walker as they bring us the latest on environmental issues for the Victorian state election, including gas extraction in Victoria and the protection of the greater glider in Victorian straight forests. Next up, we will be hearing from... Um, whoops, one minute, my brain is catching up to me. Next up, we'll be hearing from Faith Hunter, who joined Annie McLaughlin to talk about the Critical Mass Bike Ride, which will be held on November 18, starting at 5pm at the State Library, or you can join at 5.30 at Avenue Reserve Royal Parade, leading into the Sydney Road, leading into Sydney Road for better bike lanes and bike facilities. Then we will be joined by Whit Gorey, who provides us with updates from the Beyond Bricks and Bars Transgender Diverse Decarceration Project, which is continuing to fundraise to support vital work with trans and gender diverse people impacted by the criminal punishment system, and to speak about the project's plans for 2023 and beyond. Then we will be hearing from welfare advocate and activist Thomas Students, who will be speaking to Priya about the RoboDebt Royal Commission, which wrapped up its first block of hearings at the end of last week. The Royal Commission is investigating serious concerns about the establishment and legality of this devastating program of automated debt recovery. Thomas is a job seeker recipient and member of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. And finally, Priya will be chatting to Tuffy Morwitzer from Gungara Environment Centre, who will join us to discuss recent relevations that the Victorian State Forest Agency, Vic Forests, has been logging in areas of old-growth native forest, despite a 2019 promise from Premier Daniel Andrews that such forest areas would be protected. Gungara Environmental Centre has been fighting to protect East Gippsland's forest from logging since 1993. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. Hi, my name's John A. Tate, and I've collected hundreds of songs about footy and sport. So we've put together a program called The Sporting Record. Hang on. It's not all about your records, John A. Em and I are also here to cast a critical 3CR eye over all things sport. 
Join John, James and me every Thursday at 4pm for the Sporting Record, right here on 855 3CR. Kicking off on Thursday, August 25th at 4 o'clock. You don't need a reason to vote early in this month's state election. Early voting centres are now open. To find your nearest voting centre, visit vec.vic.gov.au or call 131-832. Your vote will help shape Victoria. A 3CR supporter. Australia's most iconic bike riding holiday, the Great Vic Bike Ride, is on from Saturday 26th of November to Sunday 4th of December. This rolling bike festival will have you pedalling along the beautiful Great Ocean Road, through the Otways and Golden Plains. Tickets include all meals, a camping spot, luggage transfers, daily entertainment and more. Sign up at www.greatvic.com.au Use promo code 3CR to get 10% off. Great Vic Bike Ride, a 3CR supporter. These are the news headlines for Thursday the 17th of November. The COP27 Climate Change Conference continues in Egypt this week with country delegates saying there has been little progress so far on how to deliver on pledges made in previous years. Pledges include making steep cuts in, warm, in climate warming emissions within this decade and contributing to the hundreds of billions of dollars needed each year by countries already struggling to cope with the impacts of climate change. Climate advocates are voicing their frustrations over failures of the conference to support full reparations for those countries disproportionately bearing the brunt of climate change impacts. Pacific Islander leaders have expressed their anger at the summit, saying that richer nations don't care about their communities and revealing they've become props in environmental campaigns. Also in news headlines this week, with a warning for First Nations listeners that this headline contains mention of a First Nations person who has died. The Northern Territory police officer who shot and killed Kumanjai Walker has this week refused to answer questions in the coronial inquest into the killing, on the grounds that they could expose him to a penalty. The questions Rolf refused to answer about the 2019 killing were in relation to, quote, obviously racist, sexist and homophobic, unquote, texts he exchanged with fellow officers, according to counsel assisting the inquiry. The questions refused by Rolf also covered suggestions of false information being supplied in his application to the Northern Territory Police and nine separate use-of-force incidents. Rolf told the inquest on Wednesday he is working in a Darwin-based office role with the police because he, he has been banned from all police stations. First Nations elders raised questions of why Rolf is still in a job with the police force at all. And finally, in news headlines, and an additional warning for First Nations listeners that this headline contains mention of harms against First Nations children.
First Nations people from the Kimberley region are intensifying calls for an on-country First Nations-run alternative to youth detention. Recognising that complex and wide-reaching kinship systems could act as welfare system. Banksia Hill Detention Centre continues to be in the spotlight over its treatment of young people in custody, with footage released this week of a First Nations child being manhandled by five officers in a controversial restraint technique. Community leaders say they believe loss of identity and culture is part of the reason high numbers of young people are ending up in prison and that white bureaucratic laws and systems that govern First Nations lives need to be more transparent and accountable. The Western Australian state government said progress is being made on an on-country Kimberley facility that was pledged in May this year with intentions for the program to commence in 2023. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 17th of November. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Nam Melbourne Slut Walk is once again taking to the streets in the fight against victim blaming and slut shame. In the past year, we have seen how deeply still rape culture is ingrained in our highest institutions, from the media to federal government. This cannot be tolerated. To take a stand, join the 2022 Slut Walk at 1pm on the 19th of November outside the Victorian State Library. Slut Walk is a 3CR supporter. Next up, we will be listening to Sam and Jack from Dirt Radio speak to Cam Walker as they bring us the latest on environmental issues for the Victorian state election, including gas extraction in Victoria and the protection of the greater glider in Victorian state forests. Here they are. It's Dirt Radio on 3CR with Jack and Sam. So today we have Cam Walker on. We do. He's the campaigns coordinator of Friends of the Earth Melbourne. Yes, discussing all things election. Morning, Cam. Morning, Cam. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks, Sam. There's another election going on, a state election. You may have heard about it. Um, so tell us, Cam, what are, what are the main environmental issues that are on the agenda for this election for both sides of politics to consider? Yeah. So I think this one, no one really expected climate and environment to be enormous. Mm. State elections are often more about, you know, the domestic, the kind of cost of living stuff, um, housing, health, education, that sort of thing. So they do tend to be very bread and butter. But we did know it was going to have a really strong focus on COVID uh, and the lockdowns and how people have responded to that. And we knew it would also have a really strong focus on cost of living. And I guess cost of living is where the green groups have really kind of shoehorned their, their way into the debate because um, you've got uh, you have the question of do you go into renewables and storage or do you go into further entrenched use of gas. So that's kind of been a really significant part of the debate. And another one which we can get to in a tick, of course, is the ongoing issue of native forest logging and whether parties will support an end to that logging. What is the situation within the election narratives, I guess, around gas? Because it seems like the Victorian government, on the one hand, has said, well, 
you know, we, we're going to ban fracking and put it in the Constitution. But on the other hand, my understanding is potentially that fracked gas could be coming into Victoria. Yes. So there's this big debate um, in the energy sector that we're going to face a shortfall in gas supply in one to two years' time, and particularly in the winter, which, of course, is when we're burning so much gas because a lot of it is used in that kind of residential sense of warming our houses using gas heaters. Mm. So leaving aside that kind of the import facility, um, which might contain frac gas, there was a strong campaign against um, a, a floating facility in Western Port Bay, the community one down there. Now there's a similar fight going in Geelong, mm. uh, which is ongoing. More at the domestic level, it's got really weird. Um, the ALP released a thing called the Gas Substitution Roadmap, which is a really interesting uh, kind of pathway that would allow the state to get off gas. It's, it's um, not got really firm timelines, but it's starting to do things like talk about the concept of fossil gas rather than liquid natural gas, which is really good. But just in the last couple of days, the coalition have come out and said that um, they wanted, quote, turbocharged gas drilling in the state, um, and that that's the only way that's going to bring our energy prices down. And it's just such a hand-fisted intervention because we don't really use gas for electricity, only in absolute peaking moments. Mm. It's not part of the normal mix of things. And people are already getting off um, gas in their homes and gas in industry because it, the cost can only go in one direction. Bass Strait, where we normally get our gas from or have done for decades, it's in rapid decline. There really isn't that much onshore conventional gas and the unconventional gas, that is the gas you've got to frack for, is off limits according to the ban in the Constitution. So it's been a really weird intervention. Um, it's like Matthew Guy, the opposition leader, is talking about a, a gas-led recovery and you probably remember when Scott Morrison <laughs> was talking about that yes. and it just sucked up a lot of money and it went absolutely nowhere and it was just a culture war waste of space. So it has been a pretty disappointing intervention in the last few days from the coalition. So we're now at a point where both the Victorian government and the opposition seem to be committed to pursuing gas beyond the election. Is that where we're at? Well, the ALP allows um, exploration of gas. There, there hasn't been new gas actually drilled, but they do allow it, and they have the gas substitution roadmap, whereas the coalition are actively pursuing as, as much as they can new offshore drilling. So there is a fair bit of daylight between their positions. Mm. Of course, the Greens and a number of the smaller progressive parties are saying, well, we just need to get off gas ASAP. So that's not the focus of the ALP, but they do have a process, which is the gas substitution process, which mm. is a pathway to get there. The gas companies and electricity companies are just price gouging like crazy. Mm. And all the gas distribution network uh, since the days of Kennett is privately owned. So it's just a money-making machine. And the quicker we can electrify and shift over to using electricity from renewable sources, the better it's going to be, certainly for the planet, but also for our hip pockets. Let's talk about forests. Uh, our little cute glider friends have had an enormous victory uh, recently. Is it registering on the election issue? I know Lily D'Ambrose was on radio talking about uh, the Vic Forest case with the Greater Glider, uh, but is it registering more broadly as an election issue? Look, I think it's starting to. I think earlier on it was much more around climate and energy. 
And if you kind of think about the last month or so, there's been a massive number of climate and energy announcements, particularly from the government and also from the Greens. The Greens did a big coal announcement on Sunday and there's been, you know, battery and storage announcements mm. and emission reduction targets and just so much stuff. There's uh, Both the major parties have been big on support for both storage and solar on roofs, that sort of thing. Um, and forest is just coming into focus now and there is a pretty strong campaign that's been coordinated through the Victorian Forest Alliance, particularly in those inner green ALP seats like Northcote, Brunswick, Richmond. And I feel like it really is getting on the agenda now. Um, it's interesting that the Greens have come out and said they would support an native forest logging by the end of next year. The government, uh, the ALP, has a target of ending logging by 2030. The coalition, the Liberal and Nationals, basically would overturn that. They just are saying we should just keep on logging forever. So, uh, you know, it's clear we've got a fair way to go in terms of convincing them. Mm. But the fact that all these community court or community-run court cases keep finding that big forest is just not looking after threatened species is just a real wake-up call to the government that they just need to rein Vic Forest in. They're just not able to look after, or they're not willing to, for whatever reason, to look after threatened species. And their reputation is in tatters. They're, they're an embarrassment now, the fact that they're a government authority and they're managing our forests and they're doing such a bad job of it and they've consistently done such a bad job for such a long time mm. and we also know we're paying for that privilege of having our forests mismanaged because the taxpayers do provide a subsidy to Vic Forest. So I think all political parties must know that the current native forest industry is on the nose with the community. Whether we can shift um, particularly the ALP any further, this side of the election really is down to the campaigning that's underway at present. We just heard from Dirt Radio, who brought us the latest on environmental issues for the Victorian state election. Sam and Jack spoke to Cam Walker about gas extraction in in Victoria and the protection of the greater glider in Victorian state forests. That's an important listen if you uh, have any gaps in your knowledge about what parties are doing what to look after our environment. And you can hear the full episode at www.3cr.org.au forward slash dirt radio. And now we're going to go to a song. Um, We're going to listen to Flex by Komang. And here it is. Me. 
We just heard the track Flex by Komang. And next up, we're going to a segment from Solidarity Breakfast, where Annie McLaughlin speaks to Faith Hunter about the critical mass bike ride, which is coming up this Friday, the 18th of November. And we're going to move right along to critical mass with Faith Hunter. G'day, Faith, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Annie. Good morning. Good morning. It is a good morning, too. Tell us about Critical Mass. It's been going on for a while, hasn't it? Yeah, so Critical Mass just celebrated its 30th uh, birthday. It started in 1992 in San Francisco. Yeah. And uh, it started up in Melbourne in 1995, so we're we're only a couple of years uh, behind. But it's been a uh, a worldwide phenomena (laughs) (laughs) where... um, Cyclists take to the road en masse with the principle that there's safety in numbers and to protest uh, the lack of safe cycling infrastructure and the lack of safety on their local roads and try and get some attention put towards uh, the sorts of changes you need to make cycling safe and accessible. Well, you're uh, certainly uh, tackling a big uh, ask, which is Sydney Road this time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, the first time someone asked for protected bike lanes on Sydney Road was during the 1890s. <laughs> so this is how long <laughs> we've been waiting. And certainly at Marybeck Bicycle User Group, we've had this on our agenda since 2008. Um, we've been talking to local politicians about it. It's a huge issue for locals because... Marybeth is an area where a lot of people do use their bicycles every day. They use them to get to work, to get the kids to school. And if you can't also get to your local shops by the bike, then you tend not to go to that shopping strip. So for traders on Sydney Road, they're surrounded by people who um, are using their bikes but can't find their way to them. So I think, you know, it's an issue for the local community and it's an issue for traders as well. So this is a cultural thing, isn't it? Because uh, bike riding, oh, in fact, it's quite interesting since COVID uh, lockdowns, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm a bike rider, so I noticed there was quite an increase in the amount of people who were riding bikes. Um, and there's been a cultural shift, hasn't there, uh, towards bike riding? Yeah, and one thing I think local shopping strips have really come to the fore in this because what used to happen was a lot of people left the suburb to go to work each day 
But now, since COVID and during ongoing COVID, <laughs> we um, a lot of those people are working from home a few days a week at least. And we're starting to see that the commuter trips at the each end of the day in and out of the suburb are slightly down, but the trips throughout the day around the suburb to local destinations as people take a lunch break or squeeze in some errands are up. Yeah. So again, you know, if you're thinking about your local shopping strip, those people who weren't around during the day um, are now and they're, they're needing somewhere to go or to access other local services rather than the ones that they might have been doing in the city or something. So it's um, it's a big issue for commuters and for those who want to use their local shopping strip. And the, the people that most impact are women and children, the elderly and the disabled, because these are the groups who don't tend to cycle when you don't have protected bike lanes. But in the countries where you do have good networks of protected bike lanes, you know, more women cycle than men, and the greatest, largest single group of people is over 65 who cycle. And disabled people also are able to use bikes as mobility devices, or if they're using other mobility devices, get around easier on them. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, it's interesting because, I mean, if you look at uh, Sydney Road, uh, the whole terrain across that area is, uh, well, it's a hi- quite hilly, actually. I mean, not that if you're in a car you'd realise this, but actually uh, Sydney Road's quite hilly and it's got an incline going up, you know, towards yeah. uh, Coburg. But also the narrowness, um, because there's so much on it, on the road itself, like the cars, cars become absolutely impossible as a as a um a method of getting from a to b in a in a situation like that it seems to me yeah it's they're not efficient in very dense urban centers and um you know sydney road the car parking that's actually on sydney road for the whole length of it there's only 400 car parks oh is that right it feels like um insanely ama- insane amount of car parks actually they're and obstacles Exactly. And, you know, there's 3,000 car parks behind the shops. Um, and what happens is as people are accessing the car parks on the street, it's not only that they're creating a danger to people on bikes and that, but the, that parallel parking and getting in and out of your parking spot, it holds up the tram. Yeah. And, you know, we don't have accessible tram stops on Sydney Road. Um, and the other issue is... It just creates this, like what you're talking about, this really congested, unsafe environment. And I think for many people, it's, you know, the picture is just one where the perception of safety or even a welcoming, enjoyable area to be in just isn't there. It would be amazing. Imagine what it would be like if uh, cars were at a minimum and uh, people and bikes were... Uh, the primary source of movement on that street and trams. Yeah, it's it would just and walking. You could walking. So at the moment, if you're a parent with a pusher with kids, if you are um, using a mobility device, you're squeezed onto a pavement where you know there's a lot of the things we like on the pavement, some cafe tables and all that. But it's 
everyone's squeezed into one small area. And, you know, Victoria Walks did a survey a couple of years ago. So only 20% of the people who were on Sydney Road in Brunswick had arrived by car. <laughs> that doesn't surprise you know, me. 80% of the road space is given up to cars. And yet they, this, this is not, um, you know, it's, it's blocking local from getting to their local shopping strip and, and um, enjoying that area because it's, it's, it's a community asset, Sydney Road. We all own it. It's our mm. local shopping strip. It's funny, you know, because it's a working class suburb. Um, <clears throat> all the working class suburbs are, um, and it's an old suburb, uh, uh, it's a walking suburb because people in the yep. past didn't have vehicles, right? Yeah, well, it's still a walking suburb. I think the proportion of people who walk to Sydney Road is, you know, well over 60% in that survey, and I, I can't remember the exact figure, but the vast majority of people get there by walking. And using a bike is an extension of walking. It, it enables people who can only walk so far to go a bit further. It enables you to carry more than when you're walking. And it enables people who can't walk very far um, to be able to move around independently because often those same people are able to ride a bike. Yeah, yeah. Uh, bike, b- bicycling is less uh, arduous than walking. Yeah. It's, um, people my, don't th- realise that, but it really is. No, and, and that's why it's so good for many disabled people and people don't realise that the extent to which disabled people use bicycles because the, the government doesn't collect any data on that. Um, but often if you're disabled, you're not allowed to drive and, um, you know, it, it gives you another means of independent mobility where you're not depending on other people and you, you have that full expression of, you know, being your own master and being in charge of what you do which is why we all love it so much. It's like why kids um, love riding bikes so much. It's one of the first times you get to just be free. Well, it's true. Um, We should get back to the critical mass and, uh, uh, you know, the details of it. And, uh, oh, oh, no, before we do, usually when you uh, point out the uh, need for... uh, you know, better facilities for bikes and all the good things that go with being uh, with bikes, uh, uh, and you know, you're targeting um, Sydney Road this time. Usually, there's this whole thing about uh, uh, a fight back from the um, local traders, but you're saying that the local traders are actually on board about this. Um, no, they're not. They're not. Oh. It's and and that's the the weird thing that. Traders have so much to gain. Um, when they wanted to remove parking from Ackland Street in St Kilda? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. also in Stonington, there was huge pushback. Go on. Yeah, but the traders in Ackland Street went and got commissioned some research and they discovered the same. Only 20% of people were coming by car and they got on board because they realised they would make that up with the number of locals who would come Um and overseas, the same has happened. Vancouver traders fought really hard against protected bike lanes and won. And now the Traders Association there is trying to get protected bike lanes in because they went and commissioned independent research 
about what they could do to revitalise their shopping strip. And the research came back and said, get rid of the parking. Oh, is that so, interesting? So the love affair with uh, the normalisation and the love affair with uh, cars uh, is really at the root of uh, stymieing a positive change. Like it's and, an and imagined that, world in their heads. It is. Like the same survey that found that only 20% of people arrive at Sydney Road Brunswick by car, traders were asked to estimate how many of their customers were coming by car, and, and they estimated 60%. <laughs> so, And that is another worldwide phenomenon. No matter where you ask, traders overestimate usually by at least 100%. So it's it's a really difficult... Um, thing to get through and, and you know, I think it would be awesome if the Sydney Road Traders Association went and did some research because they, that would show them how, you know, shopping strips like Sydney Road depend on locals um, and Sydney Road's struggling at the moment. Their foot traffic is down and, you know, there's a really good solution that would really revitalise Sydney Road and um, I think uh, for the benefit of locals and the traders you know, it would be great if they could find a way to get to that point. Well Critical Mass, you're going to meet at the State Library on Swanston Street um, 5pm on Friday the 18th of November Yep, and we'll have a second point at the Avenue Reserve on Royal Parade, which is just near Royal Parade and Park Street. Mm-hmm. So if you are already in Brunswick or north and you don't want to go to the city or maybe you're bringing the kids, you can wait there and the ride will come past. We're estimating maybe at 5.30 and you can just jump on um, and ride up Sydney Road to War and we'll be going to War Park in Brunswick where there's going to be a heap of speakers from um, Disability Resource Centre, uh, Melbourne Uni, Associate Professor Crystal Legacy, and a lot of uh, local Extinction Rebellion, and some of the local candidates in the election will also be there. Yeah, it sounds like a good Friday night activity for 18th of November. It would be awesome to see everyone there. It's going to be great. Thanks, Faith. Thank you, Annie. We just heard Annie have a chat to Faith Hunter about the Critical Mass bike ride, which will be held this Friday, the 18th of November, starting at 5pm from the State Library. And now we're going to go to a track by the Pigram Brothers. The Pigram Brothers uh, hold a special place in my heart, and listening to their music always reminds me of um, my childhood up in Rubibi Broom. Uh, right now, it's going to be pretty hot up there. It's ludger season leading into the wet season, so hot and muggy. Uh, the weather in Nam, Melbourne at the moment is reminding me of my childhood as well. And now we're going to listen to the track Road Train. Unfolding 
dewdrop in the dawn, rising like a mountain through the foggy morn. Right in this life dream, catch me if I fall. Starting to rise now, my shadows up the wall. And I'm rolling like a road train. We just heard Road Train by the Pigwin Brothers from their album Saltwater Country. Now we're going to hear a pre-recorded conversation between Priya Kunjan and Whit Gorry. Today Whit Gorry provides us with updates from the Beyond Bars 
Beyond Bricks and Bars Transgender Diverse Decarceration Project, which is continuing to fundraise to support vital work with trans and gender diverse people impacted by the criminal punishment system, and to speak about the project's plans for 2023 and beyond. Wit is a white trans social worker who has worked alongside communities impacted by criminalisation and incarceration for the past decade. They have been building beyond bricks and bars over the past three years, providing direct support to trans and gender diverse people incarcerated, at risk of incarceration, and those re-establishing life after prison. Wit, thanks so much for making the time to speak with me. No worries, thank you. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's Transgender Awareness Week, and I think that something that folks aren't aware of enough in general really is the sort of uh, institutional barriers and structural oppression that trans and gender diverse people, sister girls and brother boys have to navigate within the carceral system. And uh, this is where the vital work of Beyond Bricks and Bars comes in. So maybe you can give our listeners a, a very brief summary of the project and the work that you've been able to do so far. Yeah, of course. Um but, uh, yeah, I just first want to acknowledge that I'm on Wurundjeri country speaking with you today um, and pay my respects to elders past and present um, and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, and especially, I think, in doing this work, um, really centering that at all times, acknowledging that prisons and, and policing are, are very fundamental elements of of colonisation and ongoing colonisation and um, particularly recognising um, the the disproportionate amounts of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that are in custody um, due to the racism of that system um, and particularly um, in terms of the work that, that this project does, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander trans and gender diverse people, sister girls and brother boys. Um, so recapping the project. So, yeah, so Beyond Bricks and Bars um, is a project that uh, started in... Well, started about four years ago, um, and it happened because I um, I was working in um, one of the prisons, running a completely different um, program, and um, got a, a referral came through um, to the organisation that I was working at uh, from a trans woman in a men's prison, and I had a really great manager, and she was like, "Go see her." Um, and so I did, and um, really that's when the work started because I, I had that conversation with her, um, and she explained to me that there was no support available to her at all or any of the trans people that were inside um, and that there was so many complex issues um, and so much um, support and advocacy was needed. Um, and then literally from word of mouth, um, I, I got... I received some more referrals from other trans people and, and then over the years I've just continued doing support work um, on a voluntary basis until it got too, too big. Um, and unfortunately there are just too many trans and gender diverse people in prison. Um, so uh, with encouragement from my community um, last year, um, I launched a fundraiser on crowd, uh, on Chuffed, a crowdfunder um, for the project um, in the hope that could get enough funding at least for a 12-month period to be able to do it um, on a part-time paid basis rather than just trying to squeeze it in um, as a side voluntary um, voluntary work, which was just not 
yeah, just couldn't meet the needs um, of the people inside. So I uh, launched it and um, was absolutely blown away by the amount of support from community um, and we were able to raise enough funds to sustain the project. It's been over a year now um, since that fundraiser went up and we're still um, completely running on um, community donations except for one grant um, that we've received so far and that's from Transgender Victoria for $10,000. Shout out to Transgender Victoria for that because that was a huge help particularly for brokerage, um, for um, crisis accommodation, for transport for people, for food, um, lots of that day in, day out stuff. Um, so that was a massive help. Um, but other than that, it's completely community donations, completely the generosity, generosity of our community um, that backs this work. Um, and since then, we've been able to bring on another um, another support worker, Max, um, who works in the project as well. Um, and since launching it, we've pretty much doubled in capacity um, and referrals. So at the moment, I think we're like at, I think we're supporting about 37 trans and gender diverse people across the state. Um, yeah, with the majority inside and then increasingly more people are getting released and we're able to support them in the community, um, which we're also seeing uh, like really great outcomes from in terms of um, like of the people that have been have been able to come out like 99%. Um, have stayed out and haven't gone back in, um, which, you know, I think just reflects the ways in which, um, you know, having good solid community support that's, um, that builds really, uh, you know, our work's really fun- founded in relationships and trust, um, and working with people, um, on a long-term basis because you really recognize that criminalization and incarceration doesn't have happen in a vacuum and that the, to really support people, you have to really um, understand all the complexities in their lives and work from where they're at and what they identify as their needs are. Um, and that, yeah, it takes, it can take years. And, um, you know, some of the people we've been supporting now for four, four years, I've been working with some people for four years. Um, and, you know, and also seeing the outcomes of that. Like I was you're just with, you know, a woman today and she's about to get parole and she just got, um, you know, her own place. And that was actually the first woman I met um, all those years ago. So she's about to get released. She's doing amazingly. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's just, it's life. It's very life changing in when, when supports can be um, really consistent. Um, and yeah, that's our real, our aim is to really keep this project going long into the future and get as many of our community out and keep people out and prevent people going in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the way that it's developed, even just watching it over the past year or so, uh, it seems like there's been, you know, a growth in a growth in maybe uh, awareness about the need, like the level of need for support, but also um, seeing that there is so much potential for actually being able to deliver the kinds of services and affirmative support that that people need to navigate these systems which are you know fundamentally set up in an adversarial way like they're not trying to help folks let alone folks who are trans and gender diverse um in those systems um so in terms of uh the sort of overall governance as well of the project i know there are some plans to build a steering committee um, of trans and gender diverse people with lived experience of incarceration i was wondering if you could speak to that as well 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, coming into the new year, um, it's one of our our big um, focuses, and um, that's also because we, you know, the a number of the um, the trans people, particularly trans women, um, that have been involved with the project and really guided this work. Like literally everything we um, do in the project is is guided by the people that we support inside and responding to the needs that they identify and the ways in which they they want to be supported. Um, and uh, so, so there's quite a few of um, the women who have been involved in the project for a number of years now that that are actually um, getting released or have been released, um, who are really um, wanting to be involved in advocacy and wanting to be involved in um, in, t- in undertaking this work directly themselves. Um, and so, yeah, we're at a really um, exciting point for the project because now we can develop a steering committee. Um, with those people that are, are out or about to be released. Um, so, yeah, the vision is to, to have a number of, of, of trans people with lived experience on that steering committee that will hold um, the most decision-making power and then also, um, you know, having and, and be paid. So every single hour that they spend involved with that, they'll be paid um, appropriately. And then um, also, obviously, volunteers that would be on the steering committee um, to help with um, strategic decision making. So, you know, a lawyer, um, you know, a media person, um, people that have those skills that um, can guide um, how we move, um, particularly with the big strategic stuff that we've increasingly um, undertaken within the project and advocacy stuff. Um, it's it's so so vital that um, the people trans people with the lived experience and those inside that are impacted by any strategic um, advocacy guide that because um, it's extremely high risk. And if if we were to undertake any work without that guidance, it puts those people at risk. And so every single thing that we do in terms of advocating, we get the approval of the trans people inside that are, that are at, at risk of being impacted by that or experiencing that um, so they can let us know how they want it to be approached. Um, and what is safest for them um, because the risk of retribution within these systems is always a reality for people in multiple different ways. Um, but, yeah, particularly having that steering committee, that's going to be amazing, and we we want to make sure that people are paid properly um, and that, you know, that's a core a core part of the work is, is also um, upskilling and providing employment opportunities for trans and gender diverse people coming out. Um, that's a, a really core cool aspect of, of building this project and handing it over to those people with lived experience. And, you know, um, the staff that are currently involved, myself and Max, you know, we want to make ourselves obsolete in this work and step back and hand that over and let those people lead this project if they want to. Um, because otherwise, I mean, I'm a strong believer and otherwise I'm just, um, you know, if, if, if as social workers or support workers or community workers that, don't have lived experience of a particular issue that you're working within, if you're not trying to work yourself out of that job, then really you're just profiting off the oppression and marginalisation of, of those communities that are impacted. Um, so, you know, we're, yeah, we're very keen to, to support people and upskill and, and, and create those platforms for, for people coming out to, to undertake this work and, and hand that project, this project over. Yeah, totally. And I think the importance of having people with lived experience of being trans and gender diverse and being incarcerated really adds a dimension that that is sort of irreplaceable in this. And 
you know, not only is it important to have that sort of structure of accountability and governance, but also to have people actually working in those support work roles who have had these experiences is is such a important goal of the project. So I was hoping you could tell us a bit more about your plans to employ trans people exiting prisons to engage in this work on an ongoing basis. Yeah, it's... um. Yeah, next year's going to be a big year um, for the project. We're really excited to yet to be employing um, particularly a few of the trans women that are getting out that are really keen um, to undertake support work um, and take up leadership roles within the project um, and particularly recognising that for trans people, especially trans women who have been criminalised, that they, they sit at the, the intersect of of that they sit in in terms of um, the barriers that they face to employment are, are massive. And we already know that there's um, really high underemployment rates um, within the trans and gender diverse community broadly. Um, but when you add in and, and experiences of poverty and homelessness um, and all these massive issues that make, um, yeah, holding down a job really, really bloody hard, um, let alone the the discrimination and transphobia that are in so many workplaces um, and so many places in the world broadly. Um, but then you add criminalisation, you add a criminal record to that, and, you know, everyone who gets out of prison, um, that ha- you know, has that hanging over them. Um, and then, yeah, adding the experiences of transphobia and transmisogyny to that, uh, it it's we recognize that it, it's a really um, difficult position and really challenging and there's so many barriers for people to engage in in meaningful um, employment that um, they actually want to be doing and particularly community-based work because there's so much um, bureaucracy in terms of um, different like checks and that sort of thing so um, for us it's really about yeah building those opportunities and opening those doors and once again, supporting trans people with lived experience of these systems to lead and guide this project into the future. So, yeah, that's our big, yeah, our core two big funding drives right now is to get get um, increased funding uh, so that we can also, yeah, properly pay people, ensure that people have the supports and that we're not, um, you know, I think so often with lived experience positions you see in the community sector, they are... They end up being um, tokenistic kind of roles, and um, or they're not properly supported, and people burn out really quickly and leave those roles because there's not a recognition of um, the impact of, of undertaking work where you've had that lived experience. Um, so, you know, our approach to this is to really uh, be guided by the people inside about how they want to undertake that work, what kind of work, not make any assumptions about what what they feel like they have capacity for and not selling anyone short either and making sure that um, that it's done in a way that's really sustainable um, for those people getting out and that they're paid equally um, to any other staff member within the project um, and are upskilled, yeah, to really um, guide guide all this work. Yeah, fantastic. And finally, where can people donate to support Beyond Bricks and Bars? Yeah, absolutely. So you can, um, if you just Google Beyond Bricks and Bars, um, we will probably come up or, or chuffed Beyond Bricks and Bars. Um, and um, 
and also like on the so are the projects located at Flat Out, um, which has been an incredible incredible support for for the work and, and they're an organisation an abolitionist organisation here in Nam, um, who've been supporting um, in particular women within the within the prisons and who were criminalised the past thirty years um, and they've um, yeah so we've co-located there um, so yeah there's also info about Beyond Bricks and Bars on the Flat Out website. Um, which is, I think, just flatout.com.au. Um, but, yeah, just on the chuffed, um, even just to share is amazing. But, you know, if, if everyone listening chucked in, the, you know, five bucks a coffee, um, that would be a huge help. We just heard from Whit Gorry, who joined Priya to go over updates from the Beyond Bricks and Bars Transgender Diverse Decarceration Project, which is continuing to fundraise to support vital work with trans and gender diverse people. It is 8.01 and this is Leela coming to you from 3CR 855 AM. Voting for the Music Victoria Awards is now open to the public. With 12 public voted categories and 60 nominees to choose from, this is your chance to vote for your favourite Victorians and go in with a chance to win a prize. Award categories to vote on include Best Group, Song, DJ, Venue, Festival and more. Voting closes Monday 21st of November. For more info on how to vote now, head to musicvictoria.com.au. Music Victoria Awards, presented by PPS 106.7 and Triple R 102.7. Music Victoria is a 3CR supporter. So, welcome Priya. Can you hear me over there? Um, Priya, all right. We are just going to troubleshoot our intricate WhatsApp situation with Priya calling in remotely. So give us a second. Do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? We'll drop them in at 3CR and put them in the books and boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. Australia's most iconic bike riding holiday, the Great Vic Bike Ride, is on from Saturday 26th of November to Sunday 4th of December. This rolling bike festival will have you pedalling along the beautiful Great Ocean Road, through the Otways and Golden Plains. Tickets include all meals, a camping spot, luggage transfers, daily entertainment and more. Sign up at www.greatvic.com.au Use promo code 3CR to get 10% off. Great Vic Bike Ride, a 3CR supporter. Okay, so we'll try that again. Priya, are you with us? 
hier. Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're joined now by welfare advocate and activist Thomas Dudans, who speaks with us about the RoboDebt Royal Commission, which wrapped up its first block of hearings at the end of last week. The Royal Commission is investigating serious concerns about the establishment and legality of this devastating program of automated debt recovery. And uh, Thomas is a job seeker recipient and member of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union who is joining us with some excellent analysis of this horrible scheme. So, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us today. No worries. Thank you for having me. Lovely to be here. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you really heard a bit of how the sausage was made, so that's some like extra surprise uh, insights, back of house organizing WhatsApp calls. Um, this is COVID programming, but I was wondering if you could start off by giving listeners a bit of a potted history of the robo-debt scandal. So how did this process of automated debt recovery come to be, and what were some of the main impacts? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great question. Um, Royal Commission's a very information dense um and heavy with like courtroom psychodrama etc so it's easy to lose your sense of perspective with these things um so as you pointed out we have remember that was a process of automated debt recovery which means that obviously we had a practice of recovering debt from welfare recipients over some time um since about john howard basically again all problems in Australia started with his government. I don't think that's a very controversial thing to say. Um, but it became a very lucrative and politically uh, easy cohort of people to hit up for some money for the budget bottom line. Um, so that's the first thing to say about it, is that the practice of recovering debts from welfare recipients is not an economical one. Um, it always costs more in administrative costs than what you get back from the payments. Um, but it does allow you to say, here we are, we have this amount of money saved on the budget bottom line. Um, so at the very start, this is a, a process that is at best has a very tenuous relationship to reality. Um, mm. We know that, of course, Australia has ridiculous problems with failing to tax massive multinational companies that, you know, are extracting our natural resources, et cetera. Um, but they'll send a debt collector after you for $20. Um, <clears throat> and they can't get more than 30 bucks a year out of Chevron. Um, so yes, that was a good 
uh, practice for the government for a while. Um, they, during the last Labor government, <clears throat> there was quite a serious high court decision um, that essentially, without going too much into it, held that it wasn't an offence not to declare income to Centrelink, um, mm. which was how they were recovering a lot of debt to that point. Um, if you prosecute people, then their lawyers will advise you to just pay that money back. So mm-hmm. regardless of what happens with that prosecution, that's a great system for standing over people and shaking them down a bit. Um, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. this high court decision um, of Ponchevska versus uh, the Commonwealth um, essentially rendered 40% of those cases um, unprosecutable. Like the existing load of cases that the government was after, and then into the future, that type of prosecution would not be a thing. You wouldn't be able to do it. Um, so then what the government did was then try to change the law to make it retrospectively okay to go and harass these people and mm-hmm. put them in jail and whatever. Um, and then the high court came back and said, actually, no, that's a ridiculous affront to the rule of law. You can't do that. Um you got to just make a new law and have it apply retrospectively to people. Um, mm-hmm. That was what they tried. That was their attempt predating robo-debt of trying to solve yeah. this. So what you've got is these massive, and this came out during the commission from testimony from mid-level officers, et cetera, is you had these massively outsized wings of the social services, of the human services department, sorry, Um mm-hmm who have to go through this process of manually matching um, ATO, payroll data, whatever data they can get their hands on about recipients in order to rationalize a certain amount of debt that people think exists because the politicians are seeking it. Like there is yeah. – and, and no point is there any, like, real basis for these – to be going after people for these debts, right? Like it's – yeah, when you're it, when you're a debt collector, everything looks like a debt. Yeah, so there's like there's massive problems with this. Obviously, it's unsustainable, um, it's uneconomical. Um, so, but this pressure keeps coming from politics, right? Is to find more savings. And wh- the reason robo debt was being worked on was the last Liberal government being very, very uh, wedded to this idea of getting the budget back in black and whatever. They had mugs and t-shirts and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was the pressure that was exerted on public servants in the face of this huge hole being blown in their, you know, welfare debt budget, which is largely a speculative quota-based concept rather than any exact, really, truly existing quantum of debt. Um, so this was, in many ways, robo debt was just a convenient way of uh, squaring a circle of totally. bridging between. This fantasy that these people are a cash cow and no one will get mad at you if you kick them and, and steal money from them. Um, and the reality of people's lives being ruined when you try and make that happen using the government. Um, yeah. So that's the background. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, like, you know, it, it, it really devastated so many people's lives and, you know, led to some really tragic deaths as well. And, 
I mean, you know, the only reason that the government really had to face any consequences for this is because of some of the tireless work of grassroots advocates. So I'm wondering um, both how the scheme was challenged and um, a bit about the complexities of the $1.8 billion settlement and, and, you know, the lead into this Royal Commission as well. Uh, yeah, so the only reason that we that we ever heard about RoboDebt, really, in anything like the time we did, was that there was a significant grassroots uh, campaign with a big mutual aid component of making sure people got advice um, and were processed and, and supported um, and put on a track out of this thing. Before they even knew what it was, this was the hashtag NotMyDebt campaign um, Activists like Asher Wolf, uh, Lindsay Jackson, many others can't possibly name them all right now. You know who you are. Um, but they were the first, essentially, point of triage for people with robo debts. Um, they were the first to identify it. It was basically a big Twitter group DM. Um, and then they started going out and helping people, compiling these stories. Um, and this was at the point, <laughs> before there was any institutional awareness of it, before there was any media awareness of it, um, and this is some of the most crucial work of the campaign. We had a lot of testimony from, well, a significant block of testimony from the community legal centers who represented people during robo-debts. Um, and they were at pains to point out that they rely on the grassroots for a lot of their work. They're really underfunded. Um, and more to the point, a lot of people on welfare don't exactly feel comfortable or don't have the means to access legal services. So mm. they they pointed out on many occasions if someone doesn't get to the point where they can contact us, we won't hear about them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so there were people um, who would only talk to a peer, right, in the same situation with that understanding, just based on the institutional squeeze that was going on. Um, so yes, eventually a bit of media attention started happening. Um, the biggest thing was that there had to be a groundswell of popular support for essentially the large, um, legal firms to become interested. But that's yeah. a, a viable proposition, uh, for them on a, on an economic and strategic level or what have you. Um, or because Bill Shorten asked you. And your firm is largely aligned with that party. Um, yeah. I mean, like, you know, on that, you know, I, I know the settlement is, is a bit of a point of controversy because it was settled out of Horton and, you know, there was mm-hmm. not this sort of precedent that ended up being set to prevent this kind of thing happening again, as far as I understand it. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, it sort of leads into the Federal Labor Party establishing this Royal Commission into robo-debt. Yeah. And I was wondering, because um, we might have to wrap up soon, but um, yeah. if you could if you could tell us a bit about this sort of first block of hearings and what yeah. are some of the revelations out of that? Uh, very simply for your listeners, um, we've heard a lot of testimony that essentially none of these senior-level public servants who are responsible for the biggest departments in government, social services, is the biggest spend in the budget, all of this stuff. They don't remember a single thing about this happening, apparently. Um, and I find that utterly not credible. Like, my concept of how my memory works, uh, I remember things that are utterly unimportant from five years ago. I would remember if I met Scott Morrison to discuss uh, building a machine with which to torture poor people. 
um, that would definitely leave an impression on me. Um, there's plenty of, of public servants below that level who have testified, who have said, yeah, I knew this was wrong and I raised it and it went nowhere. Um, so, you know, someone is lying and it appears to be a lot of people lying, uh, in cahoots with each other to cover up something or other. Um, now it's, yeah. it's debatable whether if we find out the nature of that, if that's actually going to be useful at all. Like, a lot of this is so self-evidently illegal and just shouldn't be done ever for any reason, for common sense, basic ethical reasons, like that it's difficult <laughs> to, to no, say totally. too much earn from just people getting up there and saying, I didn't know anything. We assumed it was right. Um, what we need to do is understand that this shouldn't have been done in the first place, that even if these debts were legally raised, they still constitute human rights abuses to be Mm -hmm. so violently um, on the necks of poor communities when you can't get more than 30 bucks a year out of Chevron is is my main takeaway from this, is that the whole of government is so obsessed with shaking down welfare recipients for money because it's the easiest thing for them to do politically that it's difficult to say what uh, what Labor thinks they're going to get out of this commission because it doesn't mm-hmm. reflect well on them, given the context I've given you of how this thing all started. They weren't totally. active player, but they agree with the reasons for doing this. Bill Shorten has been in the news as soon as they've got in saying, I'm a, I'm a tough cop on the beat, which, you know. Yeah, he's going to be the RoboCop, I, yeah, exactly. I recall. Yeah, I that's mean, like exactly the language Scott Morrison used in the the evidence we've seen of this scheme being developed. So, yeah, yeah it's it's absolutely you know speaks to this entire policy rationale that sees um, members of our community who are on social security payments as a drain on the economy rather than yeah. actually just seeing them as humans who are community members and social security as a necessary you know basic right. Look, Thomas, none of these yeah. people actually have a concept of that from what I've seen. Totally. Yeah. Look, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for thank bearing you. with um, a couple of technical difficulties at the start. Oh, no and we'll worries. be sure to, to have you on soon. Um, take care. Yes. More to learn. Thank you. All right. And that was welfare advocate and active Thomas Stevens. He spoke with us about the RoboDebt Royal Commission, which wrapped up its first block of hearings at the end of last week. And the Royal Commission is investigating serious concerns about the establishment and legality of this devastating program of automated debt recovery. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. There are now 189 people on hunger strike. 62 have sewn their lips together, including two women and five children. For Woomera, this isn't an unusual day. We have an old saying in Persia that says, there is no darker color than black. So we were in the camp, we have two options. Are they deporting us to back to persecution, to prison, to death, or die in the camp. But I think you guys give us a third option, which is another try. They bent like half-cooked spaghetti. We didn't expect it to happen like that, to the soundtrack of Amelie 
a popular French movie at the time, blowing across the desert from dusty speakers. The fence began to fall, under the weight of people wanting justice, under the weight of people that had had enough. Join us for Woomera Stories on Monday, November 21st and November 28th at 6pm on 3CR. Already they've set up camp only 200 metres from the Woomera Detention Centre's main gate. If you or someone you know need help voting in this month's state election, you can ask a family member, carer or one of our VEC election staff to help you complete your ballot papers. There's language assistance too. If you are blind, have low vision or a physical disability and need help to vote, you can vote by telephone. For more information, visit vec.vic.gov.au or call 131-832. Your vote will help shape Victoria. Authorised by W. Gately, Electoral Commissioner, 530 Collins Street, Melbourne, Victoria. A 3CR supporter. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we're now joined by Tuffy Morwitzer from Goongarra Environment Centre to discuss recent revelations that the Victorian State Forestry Agency, Vic Forest, has been logging areas of old-growth native forests despite a 2019 promise from Premier Daniel Andrews that such forest areas would be protected. Tuffy, good morning. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good, nice and crisp morning here. Big rain last night, so. Yeah, yeah. and you're out in, in East Giphy now. So um, I thought maybe we could begin by contextualising some of these recent revelations of, of forest logging and why it's so important that native forests, but particularly old-growth areas, are preserved. So old-growth forests are incredibly important. They are the most effective at storing carbon, um, the, the most carbon intensive forests we have, they are the most effective filters of our water uh, and they also allow more water to come through because the younger forests kind of draw it up. Um, they're one of the most biodiverse, well, they, they are the most biodiverse terrestrial place we have. Um, in East Gippsland, 34% um, percent of threatened species, listed species, are actually based in East Gippsland. So, yeah, you know, they're old, they've got the tree hollows. Um, you know, you look at a tree fern in an old-growth forest and you'll see about... 10 other different little plants growing off it. Um, mm-hmm. You just don't really see that kind of, um, yeah, life, really. Yeah. yeah. Anywhere else. So they're very important places. They're yeah, also absolutely. Good, you know, yeah, mitigate against fire too. So the damp totally. forest. 
Yeah, and I mean, this is, you know, why it's so concerning that the ABC recently broke a story revealing that, you know, counter to public promises by Premier Daniel Andrews in 2019 to end old growth forest logging and wind down native forest logging in general, uh, the Victorian government forestry agency, Vic Forest, has continued to log these old growth areas across the state. So what was meant to be in place to protect these areas and how has uh, Vic Forest gotten around this? Oh, they've been logging these areas for decades and I think we're all pretty aware of campaigns to save old growth forests. Like that's been Gecko's core business for the last 30 years. Um, but there was uh, a court case which was launched in 2017 which was about the um, legal requirement um, under the the East Gippsland Forest Management Area Plan, which was to retain 60% of wet and damp old growth forests according to 1995 levels. And so, yeah, the, the argument was that they weren't doing that and they had a legal obligation to do that. But other than that, um, there's really no other legislative um, protections for old growth. Uh, um, th- those protect in terms of that 60%, they're meant to place that in in protected areas, which still hasn't happened. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, there's also been uh, you know documented in some of this recent reporting an adjustment of this field test to determine what an old growth area is or what counts as old growth, and this um, appears to be ruling back in previously off limits areas for logging. So. Um, also wondering because Gecko had some involvement in looking at freedom of information, um, or sorry, via freedom of information to get some clarity about this. If you could tell us uh, about this assessment. So the field assessment tool um, came about, this particular version of it came about um, because of that court case that I just mentioned. So... Um, yeah, as a result of that, even though the court case ostensibly closed in 2019, um, Daniel Andrews made that announcement about the 90,000 um, hectares that would be um, protected. And so um, the risk of this court case, which was actually covering about 34 areas, um, including this area called Kuark, which was a really big campaign that Gecko ran, um, in 2017, which was the premise actually for that court case. So because of, um, so because of that court case, they, they, the announcement, they, um, reopened the court case to introduce this new tool. Mm-hmm. And the tool was actually basically copied and pasted from an old one that was designed by Vic Forest. So the tool, it has been designed by industry um, and it's being used by Vic Forest themselves to verify if old growth exists or not, which, you know, if anyone that was watching the news recently in terms of the ABC exclusive on that and and the online piece, that's madness. You cannot Mm -hmm. have the industry, um, you know, determining what to log or not when, when, when what they're looking at is so critically important. So, you know, besides this tool being created, 
we're still waiting for them to create those those protected areas which they're required to by law. And we're actually still waiting on the judgment of that court case. That's nearly five years later. That judgment yeah. still hasn't been handed down. It's so ridiculous and totally like putting the fox in charge of the hen house here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, it, it, and just to sort of, um, you know, come to a close, uh, there have been some recent uh, court orders around um, a failure to protect the yellow belly glider and in- endangered greater glider. And there have been um, the Victorian Supreme Court has uh, ordered for stricter rules for the operation of big forests. So very briefly, what's your read of these measures? And are you confident that they're going to prevent further logging, um, considering all these other things that already still need to be put in place? Yeah, Um the protections are a, more of a positive step forward. Um, so, you know, what, what the court um, has ordered is that for yellow belly gliders, um, they need to retain 60% of the harvested, the area that, that they intend to harvest. Um, and so that's for both greater gliders and yellow belly gliders. And they also have to retain a hundred meter buffer, um, along, along waterways. Um, and so like we know from the research that, um, that that's maybe, maybe enough for these species to survive because the previous, um, area was absolutely not enough. Um, and the other thing that they have to do is they have to survey because Vic Forest weren't surveying. Uh, the department wasn't surveying for threatened species at all. And you had to, I mean, it's kind of like you had to laugh and cry at the same time uh, hearing the court case because, you know, you hear Vic Forest in the courtroom saying, we can't log these, you know, we can't um, survey these areas. They're very dangerous. And <laughs> you know, things, it's yeah. night time. It's night time. It's dark. You know, oh we can only gosh. walk along the, the road where it's safe. And, you know, here we have, like, Gecko, the last citizen science camp. We have probably, like, a 100 people out there surveying across six different um, coops through the bush at night time from, you know, young to old. Um, yeah. Yeah. So and, yeah, and they and then saying that in the same breath that they should be able to log these areas as well when it's not safe <laughs> to survey. Look, yeah, Kathy, we're going to have yeah. to to wrap up, but thank you so much for this um, update from East Gippsland. Really appreciate all of your work. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Thanks for joining us this week and we will be back with you next week on Thursday breakfast, 3CR, 855 AM. Um, and just before we go, a short message that you can tune in to Homes Not Prisons campaign part two, which is airing on 3CR today from midday. And you can listen to that on um, on air on 855 AM or on digital radio. Thank you so much for joining us and goodbye.